Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Michael New, principal at Fifth Wall, the world's largest venture capital firm focusing on the real estate industry. Just recently, Michael and his team closed $500 million, half a billion dollars to decarbonize the real estate industry. Part of our conversation focuses on the raise, their mandates, and how they intended to deploy that capital. But Michael and I go further. He takes us deep into his mindset when he's evaluating deals, why he thinks the story behind the pitch is crucially important, and how he and the Fifth Wall team leverage relationships for adding value to their investments and for identifying future trends. I really enjoyed this one. Whether you're a public or private company, or just venturing out, you'll take a lot from this interview. And before we get started, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to our conversation as I reached out to you when I read a headline that you just closed $500 million for a real estate carbon fund or climate fund. That is a massive amount of money, but it is also part of many funds, as I understand, that are part of Fifth Wall, the organization you're part of. The best way we can get into all of that and more is with the background on yourself and your experience there. So can I hand it over to you and you give us an introduction? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. I've been with Fifth Wall now for, for six and a half years. Prior to joining, I worked in another venture fund here in Los Angeles as well. But when I joined Fifth Wall, the idea was to start the first ever venture capital fund focused on the real estate industry. And it's crazy to me that there were no venture capital funds focused on the real estate industry because it's the biggest industry on the planet. It's 13% of US GDP. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that it's under-technologized. And the founders of the firm, they had a vision behind kind of technologizing the biggest industry on the planet. The way that they went about doing it was also pretty unique. About half the capital that we've raised historically comes from traditional institutional allocators to venture funds, endowments and pensions and sovereigns and, and family offices. But the unique element of our business is that the other half of our capital, it comes from large real estate corporations, the actual end users of the technology in which we invest. And we've got 110 of them now in 17 different countries, plenty of names that you would know, I'm sure, Lennar and CBRE, Cushman and Wakefield and Heinz and Marriott and Hilton. But we started small. We had seven in our first fund. And the idea behind bringing those LPs in was that they'd tell us what they were looking for. So to inform the way that we developed our investment theses. They provide a feedback loop as we're underwriting the companies that we actually do invest. And we get to ask them what they think of the team and the market and how difficult it would be to displace whatever legacy solution that startup is trying to disrupt. And then number three, once we invest in a startup, we look to distribute their technology to our LPs, who are their largest potential customers. So the vision for Fifth Wall that was laid out to me six and a half years ago is pretty much exactly how the firm has evolved over time. And I've had a pretty wide-ranging set of roles here at Fifth Wall. I started on our investment team. I did that for three years. Then I was our CEO's chief of staff. And then my title after that was VP of Special Projects. Both of those are kind of nebulous titles, but I did the same thing, which is build new stuff, either new fund products or new business departments internally. Now I spend most of my time raising capital on behalf of the firm. But one of the initiatives that I focused on 
was the development of and the raising of that climate technology fund. And I'm happy to go into plenty of detail on on that fund and strategy, but hopefully that's enough of a nice background on myself and, and the firm here at Fifth Wall as well. Yeah, it's certainly a good place to start. And let's focus on that fund because it's timely and the capital formation there, that is a ton of money to be raised. I love the idea of being able to go directly to the end user who had you know, arguably huge pockets to be able to relieve of money to invest in a fund. But you've raised half billion dollars to be deployed into different projects. How do you go about selling that fund? What's the mandate? What's the thesis? You know, What are the details there? Yeah. A lot of people don't really think about the real estate industry when they think of the big kind of climate culprits, right? You think of oil and gas and you think of transportation. But many people listening to this podcast might be surprised to learn that the real estate industry is the single largest contributor to climate change. It is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases. It is the largest consumer of raw materials. It is the largest user of energy. And despite being responsible for like 40-ish percent of all, received 6% of all climate tech funding over the last decade, which is crazy. There's a massive spread between the relative share of the problem and the dollars that have flowed towards developing solutions to address that problem. And then you ask yourself, well, who has the most at stake? Who wants to solve this problem the most? And the answer is the real estate corporations themselves that own and operate and develop all of the buildings that are up around us, because eventually the moment of reckoning is going to come for the world's biggest climate offender. Despite that, over the last decade, real estate corporations globally have invested less than $100 million into climate technologies. So even they haven't tried to develop the solutions that they will ultimately need to adopt to meet their own decarbonization goals and the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. And all of that background info, it's important because when we first started raising this climate technology fund, we didn't necessarily have the most receptive audience from those real estate corporations. They said, listen, sustainability is definitely something we're focused on, but we don't have millions of dollars to invest in a fund. We're just going to wait until these technologies ultimately are developed and then we'll adopt them. And we spent a lot of time kind of thinking through what timelines we need to be cognizant of. And everybody thinks like, okay, the Paris Climate Agreement says that we need to lower total emissions 100% on a net basis by 2050 to avoid catastrophic runaway climate change. And that's all the stuff you see on Leonardo DiCaprio's documentaries, right? That's like wildfires and flooding and melting of the polar ice caps and increased mosquitoes and disease spread, all that bad stuff. But 2050 sounds like it's really far away. And because of that, most big corporations are like, we've got plenty of time to think about this. The reality is, though, at current emissions levels, we're going to be a degree and a half above pre-industrial levels in 2040, which means that that time runline is now 20 years. And most net zero pledges kick in by 2030, which means that there's really only like eight years to develop technologies that will actually reduce the emissions profile across the entire real estate value chain. And once we kind of contextualized all of that for the real estate firms with whom we were trying to do business, I think they started to understand the urgency of the problem. And that problem is because technology in the climate realm for real estate has been so underfunded over the last decade. If you're a real estate corporation that wants to decarbonize its assets, You either have to adopt technology that is so prohibitively expensive that you're doing it out of altruism, or you're looking for technology that doesn't exist yet. And so we raised this $500 million fund. It's five times more than real estate firms have ever committed to decarbonizing their assets. But we do see it as really the first step in a long journey towards decarbonizing real estate because there's a Morgan Stanley report that says it's going to cost $18 trillion over the next two decades to do so. So we're really only inching our way a little bit closer to the total capital that the industry is going to consume as it transitions to a cleaner one. So where do you see the biggest opportunities that are coming of this? And something that comes to mind is that of the world of carbon credits. And we're seeing a lot more carbon projects, whether it's investing in actual projects for conservation that are able to kick off measurable carbon credits, or whether it's carbon capture and sequestration. You know, there's a lot of money going into this. Where do you see this? Where do you see the opportunities for this money to be placed? 
Yeah. So I think there are like kind of two different realms of the carbon problem that we need to solve. One is carbon reduction, right? Like the real estate industry emits nine gigatons of carbon each year. That number needs to come down. But in order to hit all of these climate objectives that real estate firms have set for themselves, we're not going to be able to use technology to get to zero total emissions. So the other side of the equation is carbon removal, right? Like, can we actively take carbon debt that has been accrued over the last 10 or 20 years out of the sky and sequester it somewhere where it's not going to escape again. And that's where all of this stuff around carbon credits and carbon offsets and and carbon sequestration comes into play. There's a really interesting dynamic that's playing out. Before the pandemic, there were no publicly traded REITs that had made any commitments to science-based targets initiatives around decarbonizing their assets. Today, there are like 36 or 37 U.S. publicly traded REITs that are doing so. In order to do so, they need to get their total emissions profile on a net basis substantially down. We know the existing technology is not going to get them all the way there. And so they are basically committing themselves to purchase these offsets into perpetuity until the technology develops to where it needs to be. That's like a short on carbon, right? Like, Right now, they know they're long carbon, and eventually, they're going to have to bring their way down. So they're committing themselves to spend what is an insane amount of money to offset their emissions profile. Today, the price per ton of carbon is like 5 or $6. There's a McKinsey report that estimates it's going to go to like $100 by 2030. So if you're an arbitrage trader, and you see that the price of something is supposed to go from $5 a ton to $100 a ton, it's probably pretty compelling. Beyond that, the supply of carbon offsets is insufficient today. And it's insufficient today because there's more demand than there is supply. But as more and more corporations make commitments to be net zero by 2030 or 2050, the demand is going to increase. And so we need more reforestation efforts. We need more development of renewable energy, wind farms, and solar panel installations that can actually create these offsets. We need to take carbon out of the side and sequester it down in salt mines. There's a massive, massive opportunity there. And it's probably no surprise that a lot of big venture funds are starting to invest heavily into the markets and the regulations around carbon trading. Andreessen Horowitz invested pretty significantly in a company called Flow Carbon. It's trying to create a marketplace of verified tokens for these offsets. And so we really like that side of the business. But offsets aren't a permanent solution, right? It's kind of like putting a bumper sticker on a Hummer that says, don't worry, I recycle. It doesn't actually solve the problem. (laughs) It just helps you feel a little bit better about your negative emissions profile. And eventually, it's not a viable long-term solution. So The carbon-reducing technologies, which is where Fifth Wall's Climate Tech Fund today is focused, those are critically important too. And that's where all of our investment activity on the climate side has gone so far. What do you see as, I'd love to get more into the mechanics of raising that capital, all this kind of stuff, but I'm still very interested in the whole world of real estate and carbon reduction. What do you see as kind of the lowest hanging fruit that the industry is going after? And what ratchets up from there. Yeah. The low-hanging fruit is stuff that is commercially viable and less expensive today than whatever it's trying to replace. So to give you an example, we're invested in a business called Turntide Technologies. Turntide develops a high-efficiency motor for HVAC systems, and their motor is somewhere between 30 to 60% more energy efficient than whatever stock motors installed in your Honeywell or your Siemens or your Schneider HVAC system today. Now, in big commercial buildings, HVAC is responsible for like 60, 70, sometimes 80% of the energy consumption of that building. So if you can figure out a way to make HVAC more energy efficient, then you can have really, really big impact on a carbon reduction scale. Turntide's motors, they cost $5,000. It saves you like $3,000 per motor on energy savings on average. So one of these motors can pay for itself in 18 months. You can literally sell them to an active climate change denying CFO because it makes monetary sense, right? So just based on the economics. Exactly, exactly. So the low hanging fruit is the part that doesn't require any sort of technical leaps, doesn't require any sort of 
altruistic tendencies. And we really like businesses like that because they're the easiest for us to distribute to the corporate LP base that Fitwell has today. But addressing the HVAC problem is not going to solve real estate's entire climate issue. There are things that we need to clean up pretty much across the entire real estate value chain. The way that we think about the world is that you know, the life cycle of a building is kind of a pretty good way to think about the life cycle of carbon emissions across the entire real estate profile. So the first thing that we look at is building materials, right? Like the actual refinement of those materials and the embodied carbon that is emitted throughout the creation of those materials. That's stuff like concrete and like steel. And if you look at an industry like concrete, first of all, producing concrete is highly emissive. You are heating up a bunch of materials in a kiln and they're letting off all of these emissions in a crazy way. Concrete, if it were a country, would be the third highest emitting country behind the United States and China. So figuring out a way to clean concrete is really, really important. It's also the you know most populously used building material by a factor of 2x versus all other building materials combined. So it's a really, really big problem and therefore a really big opportunity. There is some crazy stat that China poured more concrete in the last 20 years than America has in its entire history. That's exactly right. I mean, like you can see videos of the development, the speed of development in China right now. And like, first of all, China doesn't have the same bureaucracy that we have around building a building, right? Like it takes a long time to put a skyscraper up, but part of that is permitting and zoning and finding a labor pool that's going to be able to work on union or non-union hours. In China, they don't have as much regulation around that. And so they can throw buildings up a lot faster. That's why there are developments of huge cities in China that feel like they just, you know, created a new New York City overnight. But also they're not as focused on the environmental impact of their construction. So in the United States, like... Can I dive in on a question on that? Yeah, absolutely. If climate is a global issue and you have LPs, limited partners coming in, giving you money for this technology, which, yes, it could have global application, but if arguably half the world is... They don't have the privilege to care about climate or the government to care because they want to be competitive. How do you make that square so that that works out? Yeah, it's happening on a global scale right now. And let me put it this way. 10 years ago, did you have any conversations with your friends about the climate crisis aside from just after watching that Al Gore documentary and Inconvenient Truth? Right. Yeah. Nobody was talking about it, right? Like, and... Then consumers, really like woke consumers, and I use woke in the most forgiving way possible, like people that actually were attuned to the size of this impending climate problem, they were the first, right? But they focused on small things before big things. They focused on turtles with plastic straws in their noses and eliminating plastic bags at the grocery store and, you know, converting to electric cars over gas burning ones. I say small because each individual consumer decision doesn't really move the needle in the way that big corporate decisions can. Today, we have this kind of series of converging forces happening right now. Number one, regulators are finally starting to implicate the general public and big corporations around their emissions profiles. We just saw the IRA bill pass. The Inflation Reduction Act is being celebrated for all of the climate provisions here in the United States. It's because, you know, eventually, if we can decrease our reliance on fossil fuels and we can drive down the cost of renewable energy, then it should have short and medium and long-term implications for the cost of anything, but especially energy. But regulators getting involved is a direct impact of the consumer public kind of getting angry about this climate problem, too. And once the consumer public got angry, so did the companies that they worked for. So if you look at Netflix or Facebook, Goldman Sachs or Ernst & Young, their employees galvanized their employers to start caring about climate. And now all of those companies have made net zero commitments by 2030 or 2052. The thing is, once you implicate yourself as a company that is going to decarbonize, you also implicate your service providers. And that connects to real estate because for Goldman and Facebook and Ernst & Young, one of their biggest service providers are their real estate landlords that actually lease them space. And so once 
the cost of doing business became more complicated because you can't do business with companies that have made these stated decarbonization goals. That's when corporations in the real estate side started paying attention. And then you look at capital markets, right? The cost of capital is more expensive for firms that have really weak ESG performance. You can get preferential interest rates if you're developing a clean building or a green building versus a super dirty and highly emissive one. So when your customers and the people that you care about and your regulators, so the people that make rules for you, and your lenders, your sources of capital that give you the money to do what you do, all start caring about sustainability, you probably have to too, whether or not you believe that climate change is a thing, which most people do today. On the government side, the government, you know, it depends on the country, right? Like the European countries are far more progressive around sustainability policy than the United States was a week ago. Certain governments across APAC are far more progressive than the United States was a week ago as well. Others are not. But eventually, there's going to be some sort of global coalition and some sort of global standard that is set around emissions across that entire landscape. And it starts piecemeal, right? It's kind of grassroots. It actually is like the definition of grassroots because most people didn't care about climate 10 years ago, like I was saying. But once the dominoes start to fall, it creates an environment in which we can actually make progress on this thing that we've known about for a very long time. You know, you do make a good point there connecting this chain of service providers to those who have stepped forward and say, we're going to reduce our emissions. Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, just banks that come to mind as an example, they're global organizations. And if they're putting this forward and then they have service providers being their real estate lessors, if that's yeah, lessor, lessee, they get tied in to having to commit to this and that's on a global standard. And so I can see how that starts to push forward and Arguably, capital is global. And if you have a lesser cost of capital because you're doing good things, even if you're financing out of Asia and you can access cheaper capital, why wouldn't you? So I can see where you're going there and how arguably, I think that this is, I think it's so hard for those on the far left, but capitalism could solve this conservation issue we have. 100%. And you bring up an interesting point around kind of institutional capital starting to pay attention to this problem. And we were talking earlier about how we raised our $500 million venture fund here focused on climate tech. 10 years ago, most people believed that responsible investing, ESG investing had to be concessionary of returns, right? It's like, we're going to invest in this stuff that we know is good for the world at the expense of the return we're able to generate for our investors. We don't think that that's correct. Right. Like we think that there's going to be so much capital that is reallocated by these big financial institutions that now have some sort of implication around their environmental performance and also the SG of ESG. Now, the solutions that actually address the big problems that threaten our planet on a global scale, they have the potential to become enormous businesses. We were talking about concrete or cement earlier. Concrete is one of the biggest industries on the planet. And once there is a cleaner solution that is at cost parity with dirty concrete, that cleaner solution is going to become industry standard. It's going to be a you know multi-billion, if not trillion dollar company. If you look across the entire value chain, that's going to start happening more and more. One of the things that I'd like to say is what's happening right now in the energy transition is somewhat like the internet revolution. But in 1990, Blockbuster didn't say, in 10 years, we're going to have an internet strategy. We know the internet's a thing. We're planning for it. In 10 years from now, we're going to know what to do in internet. And Netflix came to market and ate Blockbuster's lunch, right? The difference in climate is that in 2022, almost every big corporation on the planet is saying, we know sustainability is a thing. And in 10 years, actually eight years, we're going to have a sustainability strategy. But they don't know where to spend that money right now. And so it takes venture firms like Fifth Wall to help identify technologies that are going to actually disrupt the incumbent legacy dirty solutions. And I think that it creates this amazing ecosystem, this amazing wealth creation opportunity. And Kara Swisher, the New York Times author, she wrote that she thinks the world's first trillionaire is going to be created in climate. 
I think that that's very likely to be the case because of how enormous this generational transfer of wealth will be. Fascinating. Fascinating. What surprised you most about the last six years in working in with Fifth Wall, raising this money, being within the industry, new as it is? What's been most surprising? It's a really good question. I think that I hope not too many of our investors are listening to this call. I think the things that surprised me the most is how archaic these massive monolithic real estate firms are when it comes to a technology and innovation strategy. And billion dollar companies, you kind of expect, would understand that tech is colliding with everything, right? Software is eating the world. And despite that, because real estate is such a high margin business and because it's been largely transacted on in the same way for the last hundred years, at least, it didn't need to be changed, even though it could be improved. And so as we work with more and more large real estate corporations, and we kind of understand and diagnose their technological pain points and priorities, we're constantly reminded of the fact that we are really in the early innings of this evolution of the real estate industry, right? And this evolution is going to filter down to the everyday person in a lot of ways, the way in which you occupy an office building, the way in which you engage with your landlord in your apartment or your single family rental, the idea of home ownership being maybe less of the American dream than it used to be. All of these things are changing in real time and real estate corporations are probably not going to be the innovators that find ways to capture all of that change that's happening. But if they're smart, what they're going to do is they're going to partner with those innovators. And those innovators are the ones that we're constantly looking to fund here at Fitball, both out of our prop tech business and out of our climate technology business. Because if you can set up these partnerships between traditional, institutional real estate firms and fast-moving, dynamic, Silicon Valley-esque entrepreneurs, then it's a a marriage of two parties that ultimately are like diametrically opposed. And I think that it creates so much opportunity. So I just kind of assumed big corporations knew what they were doing across every element of their kind of operational stack. And it has been shocking, or at least highly surprising to me, to see just how clueless some can be around their strategies. There are plenty that are super progressive and really, really good at what they do too. You know, it reminds me as well of the medical industry. And of course, you know, up here in Canada, different than the US, but I was speaking with a doctor I know and she said, oh yeah, no, I have to fax it to, uh, I fax it to my team. And it was like the music stopped. I'm like, what do you mean you fax still? And that is how they still keep compliant. So I don't think it's a knock so much on the organizations being what a medical or real estate in these just huge, huge, huge real estate organizations so much as that. I mean, they're organizations that have built value and know how to build value day in and day out. And they're not in the business of making bets. And so they stick with it. And so I can see the surprise. But you also, when you look at how they operate, it's a very different world. Yeah, fascinating. Now, Let's change gears here. As an investor, you've, I'm sure, written term sheets, signed the checks, put together deals, and invested in organizations, invested in entrepreneurs with previous funds and your previous roles with Fifth Wall. I want to get your perspectives on how to engage or how investors should be engaging with you. If I was pitching you, how can I access that capital? How do you successfully access that capital? It's a great question. And The answer I give can either be really generic or it could be really specific. I'll start generic and then I'll kind of hone in. On the generic side, you need to have a good idea, right? And you need to have an operational plan behind how you're going to bring that good idea to market. And that good idea, it can't just be novel and interesting, but it needs to have a unit economic profile behind it that can kind of scale up towards profitability over time. You see a lot in venture capital, really great ideas that have no chance of ever being profitable. In fact, Uber, for example, is a business model where they basically raised a bunch of venture capital money to make the cost of riding an Uber extremely inexpensive to build a really massive customer base. And then when the company went public, Uber's prices skyrocketed. 
We all kind of felt the effects of that because it coincided with the pandemic when we were using Ubers far less. And, and it's something that's tangible. So the numbers need to make sense. But most of the time when you're building a new business or trying to build something that's disruptive, you don't exactly know what your pricing power is going to look like. You don't exactly know what the cost of your product production is actually going to cost. You don't know how expensive it's going to be to actually run that business day to day. So I think the other thing that's really important is you need to be able to tell a story. And I have a lot of friends from school or kind of in the networks that I've built over my professional career that have gone on to become entrepreneurs. And they send me their initial pitch decks. And the thing I always say is, there's no story here. Like it tells me what the company is and what it does, but it isn't compelling enough to catch my attention. If you can't catch my attention, you're going to struggle to catch other investors' attention. And you're going to struggle to catch the attention and the interest and the capital of the people that you're trying to sell your product to. So I think narrative is incredibly important. We spend a lot of time thinking about narrative here at Fifth Wall. And that comes through in like kind of the way that you make your deck. If it's ugly, you know, I might not spend as much time looking at it, but if it's pretty and well executed and thoughtfully laid out, I might flip a couple more pages in. So narrative, I think is really important. And I, I said specifically too, because we've got a really unique business model here at Fifth Wall focused on real estate innovation. To be interesting for Fifth Wall, we have to understand how your product is going to address a pain point for the LPs that are investing in our fund looking for solutions to their problems. It's not that hard to find a component of the real estate value chain that isn't operating at 100% maximal efficiency, but figuring out how to craft, again, that narrative in a way that will compel Fifth Wall to reach out to our LPs and say, we came across this really novel concept. We'd love to know whether or not you think you can see yourselves adopting it is really important too. But again, the underpinning there is story and narrative and brand building, because that is crucial, I think, to helping a company go from just an idea in somebody's garage to something that's actually going out there, raising money, signing customers, scaling up the business, launching new products that are adjacent to it. It all needs to make sense. I'm always thrilled when people talk about the narrative development around raising capital. I mean, it is to me, I learned from one of the best in the business how to raise capital by telling super compelling stories. And and we would lean on a story structure of thinking forward. You even look what Hollywood does. You come out of the gate with your, your hero and your guide and your problem and the situation you have to work through and you climax, bam, and on your way. That is every, almost every movie follows that same structure. A narrative for a deal should as well. And then something else that I say is that Emotion trumps logic. And when you're hitting on the point of if this deck is nicely laid out, is branded so it feels good, I might just emotionally just flip the next page and say, you know what? I haven't heard any of the logic yet, but emotionally, I'm getting a feeling that I should probably take this call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we feel the same way. I'm really lucky and I'm grateful to have worked at Fifth Wall with so many smart people. When I first joined the company, I joined because I had coffee with one of the founders, Brendan. And he laid out to me a vision for Fifth Wall six and a half years ago. And I was so captivated by the story that he told before he had even raised a dollar that I quit my job to take an internship at Fifth Wall that turned into a full-time gig. And over the intervening couple of and you years- were, As you mentioned, you were the first employee of the company, of that's the fund. right. Yeah. Well, me and another guy, Vic, we started on the same day, but I arrived 15 minutes before he did. So I like to say I was employee number one. <laughs> Technicality. Got it. That's right. And then over time, as we launched new products here at Fifth Wall, Brendan always was fixated on the narrative. What is the story that we're telling to the market? It's really important. And then a couple of years later, when we introduced our climate tech business, we hired a guy named Greg Smithies. He's one of the two co-heads of our strategies. He and Peter are phenomenal. But Greg has a really simple structure for every story he likes to tell. And it's not groundbreaking. I'm sure he didn't make this up, but it's start with the problem, size the opportunity, talk about why you've come up with a good solution. And that problem opportunity solution framework is the narrative framework that I counsel everyone to build in. Every time we talk about a portfolio company, we want to go through what the problem is that they're addressing, how big the opportunity is, how their solution is excellent. Every time we build a new fund, we go through the problem opportunity solution framework. And it's a really good way to keep people interested because you scare them. 
And then you tell them there's a big amount of money to be made here. And then you tell them, I figured out how to make that money. Let's go out and execute. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can even feel the emotional journey through that structure. That's uh, very cool. Yeah. It's very, very neat. Yeah. And so the pitch, the narrative reaching out to you, when it comes to term sheets and engaging with VCs, what advice do you have for CEOs and management teams? And the reason why I say this is because I think a lot of entrepreneurs can be signing a death warrant to their company by not fully understanding the chess game they're playing when dicking around with their cap table kind of thing. So what advice do you have in and around there to properly capitalize for the long run? Yeah, we've lived in a really interesting world for venture over the last five or six years. It's been frothy. There's been an enormous amount of dry powder out there. In fact, I think there's more dry powder today than there ever has been in human history. Maybe that's not true today, but it was six months ago for certain. And what that means is entrepreneurs, even though sometimes it feels like it's a struggle to raise money, if you have a really good concept, if you have the kind of business that is fundable, you probably have more than one option at your disposal for rounding out your cap table. The advice that I would give, the advice that I would always give is fly to quality, right? Like find investors that are going to bring something value additive to the table. And I say that because, you know, you can take the most expensive term sheet that you get. You can, you know, take the least dilutive term sheet that you get. But if that investor is not going to help you grow your business, think through your problems, deal with the tough situations that are bound to crop up as you're running that business, then that cash isn't worth all that much, right? And like, if you own 70% of a business that goes to zero, your money's worth zero. If you own 50% of a business that goes to $2 billion, then you're worth a billion dollars. So finding investors that can bring something to the table, I think, is really important. At the same time, I don't think that it's wrong for founders to be aggressive in the way that they negotiate with venture capitalists, right? Like, at the end of the day, you don't get what you don't ask for. And I think that there are an increasing number of creative structures around the way that you can kind of finance a business. Could just be a straight equity check, but you could add performance milestones into the way that that term sheet is drafted. Like, I'll let venture capitalist X put an additional $5 million into my business at a valuation equal to whatever they enter at, so long as they bring to me what they say they can. Introductions to 10 other LPs to come into our business. Introductions to at least five large-scale customers. Introductions to people that generate $10 million or more of revenue for me. And so you align incentives in a way that I think is really important because you want to give your VC a reason to go to work for you. But if they are able to deliver on the value proposition that everybody promotes in a pitch meeting, right? Like people like the company, they'll say, oh, you got to take capital from us. We have this unbelievable Rolodex and we have an operational team that will roll up their sleeves and get to work for you. Make them earn it right? Like if they can actually do what they say they can, excellent, and give them more. But if they can't, and all they really are good for is uh, an equity check at the beginning of the day, then, you know, you take less dilution and you also take less risk on your business that you can then fill in with other value additive investors as well. So that's one side of things. That's a fascinating approach. I just want to point this out that I think a lot of management teams or CEOs and founders when they're raising capital, don't realize that VCs are in the business of deploying capital and they tend to have a problem of good deal flow. And so if they don't have deals to put that money to work in, they ain't getting paid kind of thing. And what I'm hearing from you with the amount of powder, the amount of capital that is sitting on the sidelines looking for deals to be put into, there is an opportunity to actually negotiate and say, let's put terms here that are going to both put us to work, not just you give me money and then take my company if it goes sideways kind of thing. That's exactly right. Like, Here's the analogy that I would use. They say that when you switch jobs, the likelihood that your salary will increase is much higher because you're starting a brand new negotiation versus at the end of the year, you get your bonus, you get your 3 to 5% average salary increase year over year or whatever it is you have a little bit less leverage because people know you won't go anywhere. Generally speaking, if you're an entrepreneur raising money for a business at the seed stage or the series A stage, you're starting a relationship with a venture capitalist. And that relationship with whatever VCs invest in that round, they are going to set the standard 
for the way that all other VCs look to engage with you in the future. So it is not wrong to be aggressive. There's a difference between aggression and greed, right? Like you have to properly understand how to value your business. But if you have confidence in yourself and in your ability to change the world, to disrupt an industry, there's no reason why you shouldn't think creatively around ways that the capital that actually fuels your growth in the early days comes to you. And I do think it's important. Then there's another side of the equation, by the way, which is like, how do you find money in the first place? We do this a lot here at Fitwell. Like we're trying to find new investors that are going to put capital into our funds. Fundraising, whether you are a GP, whether you are a startup, whether you are a foundation, it is a game of numbers, right? You need to have a lot of conversations and not every single one of them is going to say yes. So the advice that I always offer to friends or peers that are starting companies is cast as broad a net as possible. Have conversations with as many venture capitalists as you possibly can, as many investors as you possibly can. You'll learn through those conversations what kind of capital you are attracted to and what kinds of people you don't want to take money from. But in addition to casting really broad net, use technology to manage your fundraising process, right? Like the typical fundraising cycle is you send an email to someone, they don't answer. If you remember to, you follow up on that. If they don't respond to your second email, you give up and you move on to the next venture fund. Yeah, that's the average approach, isn't it? Right? But like, I've gotten plenty of emails from people where I, I don't see it or it gets filtered to my spam and the follow-up, I, I don't really read. And then they, they keep following up with me. I might pay attention and say, what is this person bothering me about? And then I read their little bio. And I'm like, actually, that's kind of interesting. I'm glad they followed up. Nobody gets mad at you for sending an email. I get hundreds of emails that are irrelevant to me every single day. I just delete them or ignore them. But every once in a while, one kind of filters its way to my inbox where I'm like, you know what? This seems kind of interesting. In fact, even this podcast, I missed your first email. And the second one, I was like, oh, I'd love to do that. I'm glad that he followed up with me. So having technology to inform the way that you kind of do that reach out and you can use HubSpot or SalesLoft or any of these tools that will automate that outreach and then having a really strong CRM to maintain and manage and track all of your relationships over time and taking fastidious notes and keeping track of all of those relationships in a really meaningful way, it creates this compounding network effect. And for people that are trying to raise money, especially early stage money, having more relationships is better than fewer. Yeah. By far, I think the success, it comes from multiple engagements with different names out there. And also just looking at it as a, as a relationship building exercise. And that's why I think your suggestion to using CRM it's a sales job. You're selling equity in your company. You're selling the future. You're selling your dream. And also, I mean, I'm sure that there's, we haven't talked bite size or stage which you guys invest, but I would imagine there's companies that might come to you and you go, you know what, it looks cool, but just too early for us. And I would argue the good ones stay in touch with you. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, like we generally invest, I would say series A all the way through to pre-IPO. We have early stage and late stage vehicles. We'll invest checks as small as like a million bucks. We can write checks as big as $75 million. So that's a really, really broad band. What we don't do typically is invest in pre-seed or seed deals. We're doing some seed deals these days because we think series A and B markets are maybe a bit overpriced. So it's a good placeholder. But more often than not, we like to invest in businesses. Once there's a little bit of traction, there are reference customers, there's product market fit and all that good stuff. But we take calls with almost every seed company that comes across our plate that we think is interesting. And we note what they say they're going to do. And we note their projections as a company. And we love checking back in with them to see whether or not the pipe dream that they laid out to us is actualizing into reality. And you know, it's funny. Anytime you look at a startup's pitch deck, they have projections that say in year one, we're going to do a million bucks. In year two, we're going to do six million. In year three, we're going to do 50. In year four, we're going to be doing 200, right? Like they're all made up numbers. But the best entrepreneurs that are kind of intellectually honest about the way that their businesses can scale, if they can develop a relationship with a firm like Fifth Wall early and they stay in touch and they keep us abreast of their development, there's a high likelihood that our familiarity with that company, because we started talking really, really early 
and our ability to kind of monitor and track the progress as that company evolves, it's going to make us more interested later on. We don't want to find out about a Series C company at the Series C. We want to find out about a Series C company at the Series A and track their performance over time and get to know the management team and understand what other investors are putting capital into it. And it is a long-term relationship building exercise. It's the same for us when we fundraise too. It's basically how all sales organizations should run. It's customer-driven and it's relationship-centric. How do you suggest that entrepreneurs communicate with you when mistakes are made? Honesty, I think, is really important. You know, like we want transparency with the entrepreneurs that we are working with and we want rationales and I think intellectual curiosity to diagnose problems and understand why they came. And we want to see kind of progress and development in the way that they think about their market or their company or idiosyncratic problems that they might face. Mistakes are going to be made though. Right? Like nobody gets it perfect 100% of the time. It's really, really hard to come up across founders that are error free. In fact, I think it's impossible. And so figuring out how to effectively communicate those mistakes, own those mistakes, say what you've learned from those mistakes, talk about how you're going to avoid those mistakes in the future is really important. And then what I would also say is it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Narrative's important too, right? Like, We don't want somebody to be dishonest with us, but if they can tell us a story around why a certain mistake was made, and then they can kind of weave together all of those components I was talking about earlier into a compelling story for the future, that's really helpful. And it's helpful for us because that would help us communicate upwards to our LPs about the business and its progress. And I think it's also going to be helpful as they look to solicit new relationships because there are going to be some bumps in the road in your past as you kind of build a large-scale company. Figuring out how to explain away those mistakes and the lessons that are learned from them, I think is a crucial skill for any founder. Yeah. I think it's a critical component where you can build trust if done well, right? You make a mistake and if you're able to communicate it, you can. But I think it also comes with a risk. And I'm curious about how many VCs out there or investors out there, when a mistake is made and it's communicated, they become vulnerable if it actually results in a positive outcome versus just keeping quiet about it. Now's a really interesting time to test that hypothesis, right? Like the markets have come down substantially over the last eight months or so. And as the markets have come down, valuations have been compressed. Businesses are seeing their cost of goods and their operating expenses go up because inflation is rising. Interest rates are going up. And You take all of those different components, you throw them into the oven and start heating them up. It creates an environment in which businesses are missing plan, right? Like they're not hitting the revenue numbers. They're not hitting their uh, profitability numbers. And they're having to go back to their investors and say, I'm going to run out of money faster than I thought I would. or We're not going to hit the projections that we put in front of you at our last quarterly board meeting. We've had these conversations with entrepreneurs that are trying to raise capital from Fifth Wall all the time. Like we recognize that we are not going to be on the same trajectory that we thought we were a couple of months ago. We appreciate that honesty. We also have to be critical of that honesty and we have to look into that honesty and we have to understand whether or not what those founders are saying actually maps to the reality of their situation. So I said narrative earlier is important. True narrative is important. Compelling true narrative is really important. But once you start to get into excuses and rationalization of bad decisions that were made, if you can't own up to the kind of first principles or root causes of those errors or those mistakes, most smart investors are going to be able to figure it out. And so the fine line to which you were alluding, Corey, of, you know, honesty being helpful in the interest of transparency and relationship building, but not wanting to be so honest that you reveal something that your investors otherwise might not find. Smart investors find big problems. They just want to know that their entrepreneurs are capable of dealing with those problems and moving forward as opposed to letting them become endemic or cancerous to the organization. I'm just looking at time, Michael. We've got about 10 minutes left before we hit an hour here. And there's a question that's been hitting my mind that I want to come back to. You made a statement about the American dream and home ownership perhaps not being what the American dream has pushed forward. Is that changing? And I don't want to go down any conspiracy paths here, but 
for example, the World Trade Organization and their statement, something along the lines of you'll own nothing, you'll be happy. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, great. Uber's awesome. And I don't own it. But I'm curious to how you and Fifth Wall look to the future. You look 10 years out and you look at things like home ownership might not be what the American dream is anymore. What influences your discussions there internally and your vision for the future? Yeah. Another really interesting question. We have a really unique seat to evaluate that question because our investors include many real estate corporations that need to believe in a future for the kind of long-term durability of their business. Let me give you an example. 15 years ago or so, the former Marriott CEO is quoted as saying, Airbnb is not a threat to our business. Now, we've seen that Airbnb has certainly had some impact on hospitality at large. People are choosing to stay in Airbnbs versus in hotels. But the average lifespan of a CEO as CEO is probably less than 10 years. They're not thinking 10, 15, 20 years into the future. They're thinking about how they can hit their operating numbers on a quarterly basis. You look at something like the decline in home ownership, right? Like there are a lot of home builders that work with Fifth Wallet and invest in our funds. And those home builders, they need to believe that people are still going to want homes, but maybe they don't need to own them anymore. And in 2008, when the recession hit and housing prices fell dramatically, one of Fifth Wall's co-founders, Brad, he was a co-founder of a business called Invitation Homes. They bought like 40,000 houses at the downturn of the recession. They turned every one of those houses into single family rental properties. So instead of owning the house that you lived in, you rented it. And that kind of pioneered this entire movement of single family for rent. Now, every real estate private equity firm in the country is doing some element of single family for rent or build to rent. And what I was saying earlier is like the American dream used to be like you grow up, you get a job, you buy a house, you get married, you have kids, you get a dog, white picket fence. Maybe you don't need to buy a house to have all of those things anymore. Maybe there's a much more affordable and accessible way to have your own single family home where you're paying rent, but you can accrue ownership over time. Or you're paying rent and you can continue to up-level into nicer and nicer homes without having the baggage or the tie-down of being a full equity owner in that property, without having a mortgage, without having all of the home insurance and title insurance and the responsibility of maintenance around your house. There's probably a new paradigm or a new model for a certain subset of the American public. Does that mean that people won't want to buy houses? Definitely not right? Like certain people will want to buy houses and whether they want to buy a house at the age of 25 or 35 or 45 for the first time, that's up for debate. But the idea of living in a house isn't going to go away. Just like the idea of working in an office isn't going to go away. It's just changing, right? Like you and I are having this conversation over what is effectively a, a Zoom conference or a Google Hangout. But it feels like we're talking to one another in a way that's pretty authentic. I can see you. I can see your background. I can see what room you're sitting in. I'm not in my office right now. I'm working from home today. But I go into the office sometimes because collaborative work is generally more effective from my perspective. This is not scientific. When you're in a room with other people, it's easier to share ideas with a whiteboard than it is over a Zoom call. Does that mean that eventually I'm going to go back to the office five days a week because I like collaborative work? Probably not. I like the freedom and flexibility of working from home too. But the office, as we currently know it, that's probably going to change too. The hotels, as we currently know it, they're going through an evolution in real time because of the influx of things like Airbnb. And so all of these asset classes, they're going to change. And as we develop theses and perspectives on how they're going to change, the first thing we do is we say, what are our corporate LPs telling us? How much of that can we take at face value? How much of that is self-serving to their own interests as a corporate? And how can we help them think about protecting their business or being dynamic and mobile and receptive to this disruption that's happening in their industry? The second thing that we do is we look at it from the other side of the coin. Who are the purchasers? Who are the renters? Who are the users, occupiers of that space? And what are their preferences? And we obviously have our own perspectives because we lease offices and we live in apartments and homes here in Fifth Ball. And so we know how we feel, but we are a small subset of the mass public in America and on a global scale, which is really, I think, the phenomenon in which we invest is a global one. And so it is our job to use pattern recognition and data 
to inform the way that we develop our hypotheses, our investment theses to go out and pursue. We like to be very thematic in our approach, and we tend to take it piecemeal. I'll give you one more example before I stop on this long, rambling line of thought. But a lot of people these days, they're talking about Web3, right? Like the next iteration of the internet. And we've been approached by many entrepreneurs that are building companies that kind of sit at the intersection of Web3 and digital real estate, right? Like let's buy land in the metaverse. Let's buy land on OpenSea. Let's buy land in Snoopverse, Snoop Dogs metaverse. But to us at first, we said, well, digital real estate's not real estate. Digital real estate's more akin to investing in video games than it is in physical assets. But as digital real estate starts to consume more and more of what physical real estate used to be used for, so like office buildings in the metaverse for interaction, which is what Meta, formerly Facebook, has made such a big bet on, maybe there are lessons to be learned from the traditional real estate market that can be applied to the digital real estate market. If that's the case, then maybe Fifth Wall's insight on the traditional real estate market can also be applied to this new changing universe. Five years ago, we weren't thinking about you know how we were going to invest in virtual reality office space. Today, we are, and we're starting to place a couple of bets in Web3, and I anticipate that that will continue to expand. Really interesting to pull it over and even into the world of Web3, into the world of the metaverse. And those are big, big ideas. But I also want to bring it back to the Marriott CEO and the reference to Airbnb is not a threat. Well, it turns out it is a threat and it has eaten some of their lunch, but it hasn't killed their business. The industry's had to change and adapt. And I mean, here we are now, again, changing and adapting from a resort standpoint where you're hearing about a lot of companies looking and and now event planners are all the rage because you're bringing remote companies into one location every quarter, building them up, making everybody happy, pumping them up and on your way, go back home and work away. And so that form of real estate is now changing and it's a hot topic, but it's just a constant evolution is what I'm hearing. And I think it's neat that you guys keep an eye out and use your LPs to really inform where you're going and what you're doing there. Yeah, it's certainly a competitive advantage for us. Being able to ask these customers of technology what they think of the disruptive capabilities of technology, it's a really important input, but it can't be taken as gospel, right? Like there's a famous Henry Ford quote. If I asked people what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. You ask a lot of real estate firms what they're looking for from a technology perspective, they'll tell you, you know, building access control. We want key cards so people can get into our buildings easier. We're like, cool. It's been around for 35 years and you can find any great key card company on Google. Let's think bigger picture. And so part of it is like kind of sourcing ideas from our LPs. Part of it is bringing our ideas to them and saying, what do you guys think? But it does create this fantastic feedback loop for us that I think really informs the way that we develop our investment strategy. And it's a differentiator for us, right? It's asymmetric information versus the rest of the market. And so I think it's it's something that I was preaching on earlier, flight to quality, finding value additive investors is important. Maybe that's a bit of a self-serving comment because I think affiliate fifth wall as value additive investor. But if I were to be an entrepreneur raising capital today, I would look for the kind of investor that I think knows more about the future of this market than I do and is going to be able to help me capture the opportunity in the future of that market in some way. Awesome, man. Let's wrap up. One final question. You've got a really fascinating career, interesting background. I'm curious what kind of things you read, what kind of things you're interested in, even outside of the world of real estate and tech. Yeah, I read plenty of nonfiction throughout the day. I'm scrolling the internet. I read all my newsletters. I have to read investment committee memos. And so when I read at night, I like to read books that are fictional and I think a bit more fantastical and hypothetical about what the world might turn into. I just read Snow Crash. Snow Crash is the book that kind of coined the topic of the metaverse. And it's a wide-ranging and kind of like roller coaster-esque ride between, you know, some guy navigating the metaverse and trying to prevent humanity from being destroyed, but there are, you know, religious tie-ins and capitalistic tie-ins. I just read a book by Salman Rushdie, who 
who's recently stabbed. Thankfully, it looks like he's going to be okay. Called Midnight's Children that I thought was one of the best books I've ever read. Basically follows the life of an entire family in India from the early 1900s through to nearly present day. And it goes from generation to generation. And I like to read books like that because, first of all, stories are fun. And I think that they're always far more engaging than whatever you can watch on TV. TV is like reading the spark notes of a book. But second, like read a book about a multi-generational family in India. You learn a lot about India. I've never been there before. And it compels me to want to go there. And I learn about what they You like got to go. Eat, I've heard so much that I need to go there. This book certainly incentivized me too. So long story made much shorter. I like long stories that are written by authors that kind of weave in together elements of realism and some like something that's maybe slightly fantastical or futural or prognostic about what the world might hold. And I try and keep the nonfiction to my work hours and fiction to my late nights. Yeah, it makes sense. It's not about the future. It's about the past. But you might be interested in a book called A Gentleman in Moscow. And it's about the fall. Have you read it? I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. Oh, yeah. It's really, really enjoyable and takes you through the life of a gentleman who was basically put in exile into a hotel and couldn't leave under the Bolshevik empire or Bolshevik revolution and through Stalin and all this. And it just really neat touch on history. And yeah, a neat, really nice writing. So just throw that one out for you. Amazing. I'll add it to my Goodreads. I'll put it next in the queue. There we go. Michael, this has been awesome. I'm really glad we connected. Really enjoyed our conversation. I'll put all of your information in the show notes. Any final comments for us, please let us know. Fantastic. No, well, I really appreciate you reaching out. I totally enjoyed the conversation as well. And you know, I hope that we can find a way to chat more. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. This was a good one. Right on. Well, we'll wrap this up. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thank you so much, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.